Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy. We pray you'd uh, just uh, help us just to sit at your feet now and hear from you. We ask that you guide us and lead us and uh, ask that your spirit would come upon us to guide us into all truth and that you would be glorified through our uh, time here as we give honor to your word and desire to hear what you would have to say uh, to your church this morning. So guide us and lead us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Joel chapter 2. It's after Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, uh, or Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you think, uh, we, I think we had a show of hands last week, but we won't do it again twice uh, this week. But if you think, are you kidding me, man? These people know all about Joel? The answer is No. We're not kidding you. These people don't know all about Joel. <laughs> and uh, so it's, uh, uh, and I don't pretend to either necessarily. But it brings to mind again a reminder that we live in a time where we need to uh, navigate truth. And the idea, I'm, I'm starting a new book uh, this week, um, Letters to the American Church by Eric Metaxas. And um, I can't endorse it yet because I haven't got all the way through it. I mean, the first chapter was awesome. Um, but the bottom line is, a lot of things are being redefined for us. And the truth be known, a lot of things have been slowly and perhaps subtly redefined for us for, for a long time. Uh, but we are now rapidly entering a world where things are being redefined for us. And truth is blurry in our society. And so I'm probably... Um, just as a person, maybe as a pastor, as, as a father and a grandfather, I'm just realizing that we all need to kind of sort of lock arms a little bit and embrace truth. And so if you find yourself feeling like, Joel, really? <laughs> right? Like, I thought we were supposed to read John and Romans and Ephesians and stuff like that. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. But we give the order of, of pri the order, you know, God wrote the Old Testament for a reason. Uh, God wrote the New Testament for a reason. They go together like a, like a glove. Again, I was, um, as part of this whole thing, uh, there's a, a very, very well-known, very well-respected in many circles uh, pastor, um, who not long ago said we should unhitch the Old Testament from our, from our thinking, from our teaching, from what we uh, adhere to. Uh, and the text that he used for that was the Jerusalem Council, whereby they, <coughs> they came to uh, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, uh, Paul and Barnabas particularly, and, and basically they asked this question, should, should Gentiles get circumcised and adhere to all the Old Testament law uh, once they become saved, and the answer was no, they don't have to do that. And then, uh, but you can quickly springboard that to say, oh, okay, so we don't need to worry about the Old Testament. <laughs> we totally need to worry about the Old Testament, right? Just because we don't adhere to the dietary laws and we don't mandate circumcision, uh, or you know, uh, we recognize that the Sabbath was really a thing between God and the Jewish people. We rec we recognize that prophetically there's a role for the nation of Israel. There's a role for the church because we you know have to kind of keep all these things in their proper order. Doesn't mean we just completely unhitch them, right? And so um, that's all a big caveat to say. 
uh, turn to Joel chapter 2, right? Everybody there? Okay. You know, when I get to say, turn to Joel chapter 3, I'll probably go in it all over again. But anyway, we, we as a habit, we, so all that say we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line, uh, through the Scripture. Uh, that's one of our uh, fundamental distinctives. And so as we go through that, we do an Old Testament piece for a bit, and a New Testament piece. And so uh, today, Lord willing, we wrap up the book of Joel and next week, when you come here on Sunday, uh, don't turn your Bibles to Amos chapter 1. You'll turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. So we'll go through Hebrews, then we'll come back and do Amos, and we kind of keep going like that, right? Like old and new, old and new, old and new. So last week we uh, introduced this book of Joel. It's a short, uh, relatively short book. Uh, one of the minor prophets, again, as we've said before, not minor in its significance, but minor in its length. It just means it's a short book, certainly shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, those guys. Um, but nonetheless, very important. And I like this in our present day context because Joel takes a situation from his present day and the Lord uses that to give us some prophetic uh, details that, that play out. So as we said last week, Joel is probably prophesying uh, in the days of, of Joash, the child king, uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, we kind of have to speculate that a little bit because there's no specific reference to that. Um, we talked about last week, the theme of the book is, quote, the day of the Lord. There's a phrase throughout the Bible called the day of the Lord. Uh, it's used 16 times in the Old Testament, eight times in the New Testament. Of those 16 Old Testament references, five of them are in this book of Joel. So a short book, but five references to the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is, is, a, is a phrase that we see in Scripture, and we see it referenced in somewhat different contexts. But if I could just say it this way, basically... Whenever you see the day of the Lord mentioned in Scripture, it's basically um, God sort of waking up the people, okay? Sometime, and, and usually it's in some form of judgment, okay? Now, we don't like to think of God as, as, uh, as a judgment God, but the reality is God is just. God is motivated by love. God loves us, but God has to be just. Otherwise, he would have no integrity. He would have no, no honesty. You know, if I just say, hey, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a king, for example, of a, let's say an earthly kingdom, which I'm not, by the way, but if I were a king of an earthly kingdom and I just said, hey, everybody, just do what you want, what would we have? We'd have complete chaos. And on, on, a, on a spiritual level, God, because God is loving but God is also just God has a standard for right and wrong okay and guess what all of us have failed that standard that's the bad news but the good news is God because of his great love for us provided the solution to that standard and that is he sent Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice to fulfill all of the Old Testament uh, uh, scripture that kind of led up to that and we now have uh we now have salvation through jesus christ and we have the privilege of being sort of set free if you will redeemed bought back from our slavery to sin and god still remains just and he still remains loving but god oftentimes even to people that are saved okay we're also, we could say, well, okay, so I've accepted Jesus in my life. I've been forgiven of all my sins. Now I can just go do whatever I want. Is that how it works? Absolutely not. We still live. We still try to serve the Lord. And unfortunately, we still stumble. And sometimes we still need um, sort of a bit of a wake-up call, right? So sometimes there's judgment, judgment, like you're thinking of, like we think of judgment. Sometimes there's God's discipline, right? Sometimes God's chastening. Hebrews talks about the chastening of the Lord. And so sometimes God does that. But anyway, wherever you see like the day of the Lord, it's some sort of wake-up call. Let's just put it that way. And ultimately, that, that sort of last day of the Lord that we see in Scripture is the great tribulation period. We've talked about this before. Uh, in yet future events, there's going to be, I believe the Scripture teaches, a rapture of the church where all Christians are gone. All right? 
like the scripture says in the twinkling of an eye. By the way, Lord willing, we'll all be gone. But if you sit here today and you're like, ah, I don't know about this stuff. If one day you wake up and you're like, dude, grandma that preached to me so much is gone. I think I remember hearing something about that, right? So go back to October 1st, uh, hit the podcast and we can talk about that or any, any of a number of references. But there will be a day, I believe, uh, clearly taught in Scripture that the church will be gone. And we meet Jesus in the air, we go back up to heaven, and uh, while we're up there, there's a time, a seven-year period on, tri- on earth, which is known as the tribulation period. During that tribulation period, God does two things. He, number one, he, uh, he deals with, if you will, he brings a great restoration and a great revival to the nation of Israel. Israel right now is full of people that are genetically Jewish, but very secular. And so God is going to, again, the day of the Lord, God is going to sort of wake up the Jewish people uh, during that time of the Great Tribulation. And another thing God is going to do is he's going to pour out his wrath, okay? We've been told in Thessalonians that we as the church have not been appointed to wrath, okay? And so we're going to be raptured. Uh, We see pictures of this even in the scripture. You know, uh, Noah, uh, Noah was, went through a time of where God brought judgment on the earth, but he was sort of removed from that judgment by going into the ark. And so we see a picture of that uh, throughout Scripture, maybe more than you wanted to know about that. But the day of the Lord is a reference to judgment, to uh, God waking us up and ultimately takes us to the great tribulation period. The first day of the Lord that Joel described was just observing what was going on in their contemporary society. And that was, there was a great famine uh, brought on by locusts. There was like uh, chapter one at the beginning, we saw there, that there were four sort of waves of a locust plague. Now we might think like too many mosquitoes, like is that like that big of a deal? You got to keep in mind, this is a, an agrarian society. This was a society that in the ancient world is completely dependent upon farming. So if the locusts wipe out all the vegetation, then you've lost your, your plants, you've lost your livestock that eat the plants, you, you know, many people would have starved to death, uh, your economy would collapse. Uh, a locust plague in the ancient world was a huge, huge catastrophe. And so, you know, Joel just takes that observation. He says, you know, that locust plague, it's really like a day of the Lord. God's trying to wake us up. And then he spoke of another uh, day of the Lord in the first part of chapter 2 we read last week that he said you know the Assyrian empire is going to come and they're going to kind of come and and bring some judgment they're going to wake us up and then uh, today we read about there's a there's a third third one that we'll talk about here in a in a little bit I think it's timely and it would be honestly I, I would be ignoring it not to call to attention that we just recently came through a pandemic fair enough I'm going to talk openly about that. Can I talk openly about that? You guys talk openly about it in your, your own openness. So why can't I, right? Um, I always think this is funny. So we have a young man over here on my right whose uh, brother was visiting this summer from, uh, from overseas. And he started talking to me about a certain topic that was a little bit passionate in my heart. And uh, I started talking about it, and he kind of nods. He said, yep, my brother told me not to get you started on that. (laughs) But it was too late. Uh, But anyway, uh, so we came through a pandemic. Now, we could divide the room in half, like vaccine, no vaccine. We could divide the room in half, mask, no mask. We could divide the room in half in any of a number of different ways. You could slice and dice the room, right? But that's not our purpose, right? I don't ever want to do that. But I'll tell you what we could do. We could say that was an interesting time in worldwide history, certain time, certainly interesting in our culture. And I might even say I, can't, I, I would be 
presuming to put myself in the position of a prophet, which I'm not, and I don't claim to be, as Joel was, you know. So I'm not going to say, okay, that was God's judgment. But I could at the very least say, that got people's attention. Is that fair? And that has caused us to do one of two things. Either look to man's wisdom or look to God. Is that fair? So we can come through a pandemic, and frankly, this is, my burden is this. My burden is, just like uh, you know, anybody who claims to follow the science, you know, science is this. Here's the essence. Here's, here's fifth grade science. You have what's called a null hypothesis. Anybody know the whole null hypothesis? You have, a, or you, have, or you have a hypothesis. You say, I think that this would be, uh, you know, if I strike a match and throw it on gasoline, I anticipate that there will be a pretty impressive explosion. Okay? That's your hypothesis. And then you carry out the experiment. You do the hypothesis. And you either say, yep, I was right, or, or, or you have the humility and the wisdom to say, I was wrong in my hypothesis. That's science. That's called the scientific method, right? Anybody been past third grade? Fifth grade, whatever grade I said it was. Yeah. Homeschoolers in the back, they rise up both hands. Yes. What grade am I in again? So, I think, am I in third grade? <laughs> um, but we have these hypotheses, right? And we either verify them or we learn and then move on, right? We might have water instead of gasoline because they look the same, right? Let's say we can't smell. I pour something on the, on the stack of wood, right? Unless you're Elijah. That's a whole other story. And, and I strike a match to it, right? And it either, either the match goes out or it explodes. And I can learn, right? I pray, and I'm not convinced yet. I pray that our society will learn from the mistakes of the pandemic response. Some things were done right. I'll just say it out loud on record as a doctor, as a, as a person who's on the board of the local health department, <laughs> as a pastor, as a guy who reads his Bible, as a guy who reads the news, this news and that news. I'll say most of what we did as Americans was a horrific mistake. Economically, socially, medically, mental healthily, on lots of levels, we should learn from that mistake. We'll see if we do or not. Time will play out. We'll find out if we're able to have the humility, and it comes down to humility or pride. We'll decide as a society if we have the humility to say we were wrong. Those are hard words to say sometimes, right? It's hard for a government official to say them. It's hard for us as individuals to say them. It's hard for society to say them. But anyway, anything that causes us to look up, even if I say, oh, wow, we were wrong, you know what we ought to do next time? Pray. You know what we ought to do next time? And I, I maybe churches ought to meet, Right? And, you know, admittedly, we didn't all know what we were dealing with at the time. But if it comes up again, I think the church ought to meet. And so, we've got to learn from our mistakes. Anything that causes us to see our limitations of man and our individual and collective need to cry out to God should be seen for what it is. And anything in our personal life or in our social world that causes us to realize we don't have all the answers to life's questions and causes us to look up, let's call that a good thing in the big scheme of things. Hard? 
Absolutely. Have, we've all known of, in many cases, loved ones that we've lost. I take nothing away from that. But anything, and we have to come to grips with this, anything that causes us to look to the Lord, I'm going to call it a good thing. And so that was a hard thing, but if it causes us to look up, that's a good thing. If it causes us to look further into man's further solutions and, and have more political arguments about it and all this kind of stuff, that's a bad thing. So how we respond often to certain life situations determines whether it's good or bad. I will tell you this. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 7, that there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places prior, in previous, various places prior to the tribulation period. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. Have you all turned to Joel chapter 2 yet? Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so again, we've got to kind of pick up from last week. Uh, I didn't make you go through the whole book last week, so we've got to pick up a little bit from last week. Last week... These uh, prior verses here in chapter 2, uh, I believe, were, were a reference, a prophetic reference to uh, the Assyrian invasion. And so um, often as prophecy comes, and, and to be fair, these are sometimes hard to understand and hard to kind of put them in, in the right kind of place. But he says, it shall come to pass afterward. After what? Well, after the Assyrian invasion. After the events that he's already prophesied against. And you've got to keep in mind, God is outside space and time. So sometimes we think, okay, afterwards, that means like next month? No, that means, that could mean a couple thousand years later, right? All we know is afterward. And so after the time of the, of the Assyrian invasion, um, we see that this is what he says is going to happen. And here's what he says is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. Now, you've got to keep in mind, in the Old Testament, we see these references, right? Remember Samson? When Samson needed, like, supernatural strength, the Scripture says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, right? Like the Holy Spirit come, up, come upon him. We see, um, I made some, some notes, uh, Joseph had times when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Joshua, Othniel, one of the uh, judges, Gideon. Uh, Jephthah, Samson, Saul, David. These guys, we see specific examples where the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so what Joel is saying is there's going to be a time when the Holy Spirit comes upon anybody that asks. Praise the Lord. We're in that time, right? Jesus said, Luke eleven eleven. You know, if you're a father and your son says, hey, can I have some bread? Would you say, let me give you this, uh, this rock that looks like bread. Like, would that be funny? No, that's cruel. Like if your son's hungry, would you give him a rock instead of, you know, and it goes, he goes through all this. He says, how much more? He says, if you guys, you know, you're born into sin, you're evil, we're all evil. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we live in an age now where the Holy Spirit is available to any who would ask. And so how do we see that uh, reference? Well, look over to Acts chapter 2. So many of you know the story. Uh, Jesus told his disciples when he, uh, before he ascended in, uh, up to heaven, he said, uh, wait, gather together, and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And they didn't really know what that meant. They had no context to put that in, no experience at this, uh, as of yet. And, but he said, just wait. And Acts chapter 2 
they're all sitting around. There's 120 of them in an in a upper room, it says. And they all, next thing you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon and everybody starts speaking in tongues. And people were gathered there uh, from all over uh, to celebrate the Pentecost. And people from different areas who spoke different languages heard these disciples speaking in their language that the disciples had never been trained in. So basically, it'd be like if there's a French guy in the room and all of a sudden I start speaking French. And here's what I say. I declare the wonderful works of God. Verse 11, chapter 2. Cretans, Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So the gift of tongues was poured out in Acts chapter 2. And, you know, some of the people thought these guys are drunk and, uh, you know, everybody had a different assessment of what's going on. As oftentimes when God is doing something, everybody has a different assessment. But Peter, verse 14, chapter 2, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. They're not drunk yet. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, whose words we just read. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what do we see here? Peter's using this passage of of Joel to indicate that this is the time of the fulfillment, right? And so are all of these... is, is all of the final fulfillment of Joel completed at this point? No. He said this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is what Joel's referencing. You've got to keep in mind, this is sort of the period of time we're entering in. Now, the period of time when the Holy Spirit is being poured out on anyone who would ask. And so, um, I like to point out here, Peter is making an observation of a miraculous event, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the speaking of tongues, and he takes that to put it into the context of Scripture. Any working of the Holy Spirit must be put in the context of Scripture. That's what Peter did in Acts chapter 2, right? That's what we must do. We put it in the context of Scripture. The Spirit and the Scripture always work together. One never contradicts the other. So, we would describe Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, as the beginning of what Bible people refer to as the church age, okay? And so what Joel is referencing, you can turn back to Joel, what Joel is referencing is there'll be a time, sometime after the Assyrians come, that will enter into the church age. And during that church age, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And during that church age, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That'd be a work of the Spirit. Your old men shall see... It shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. That's a work of the Spirit. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my Spirit in those days. Notice this, men servants and maid servants. What's that refer to? It, basically, common people. Don't you love that you don't have to be a king or a priest or prophet to ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, to guide you, to lead you? to help you manifest the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Those are available to us as Christians. Whether you're a king or a priest or a prophet or a men servant or a maidservant, an old man or a young man, your son, whether you're a son or a daughter, right? These are all available to us as Christians. So we call the church age the time from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. I said earlier the rapture of the church all the Christians on planet Earth at that time, i.e. the church, are gone, right? And uh, so this is the church age that we live in. Do we know how long it's going to last? Do we know what day the, tribula- or the, the rapture comes? No. That's the part where Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. 
And so we don't know when that's going to happen. I will say this, you know, when Jesus said things like, you know, there's going to be famines and pestilence and earthquakes and, and all of that, a lot of these things have been completed. The restoration of the nation of Israel, 1948. It's crazy. Think about it in terms of history. I've said this before, I'll say it again, that a nation and all of its civilization and its, and its, and its cultural identity and all that is wrapped up into that, its language ceases to exist from 70 AD until 1948, almost 1900 years. And then in 1948, all of a sudden we've got a nation of Israel, right? Do you see the, anybody ever see like the nations of the Philistines? Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, there's two others, I forget what they are, Gath, right? Do we see those, like, all of a sudden reappear on, the, on, the, on our globes? No. Do we see, like, Moab, Edom, these ancient civilizations, the Hittites? Do we see them reappear? No. But Israel, we do. Is that funny to anybody? Well, not if we read our Bibles. And take it at face value, right? So the church age goes from the Pentecost to the rapture of the church. So he goes on, uh, verse 30. He says, And I will, show the wonder, I will show wonders in heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Again, Peter referenced those, those verses. Now here's where I say, and, and again, not every Bible student agrees with this, okay, so I wouldn't fight anybody over this. But he says, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. I don't feel like, you know, and again, there's, there's room for interpretation, but if I'm going to take the Bible as literally as possible, I've not really experienced blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood. I don't feel like I've seen what I would say is a satisfactory fulfillment of that uh, yet. Does that mean it doesn't happen? We just erase that? No. Turn over to Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, chapter 6. Now, the setting here is, this is after the rapture of the church during the time of the Great Tribulation, during that seven-year period of the Tribulation. And again, I said God's going to deal with the Jewish people. He's also going to pour out his wrath. There's going to be some crazy stuff going on uh, during that time. So Revelation chapter 6, starting verse 12. He says, And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. What did Joel say? was going to happen? Said the sun should be turned into darkness? Huh. Does that make you say, huh? Try it. See, it does. Right? The sun should be as black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. I look back to Joel. Says, uh, and the moon into blood. What's that make you say? Huh. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. So, like, stars are going to kind of fall, right? It's kind of, you know, he says, I'm going to show wonders in heavens and the earth in, in Joel. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. I'm thinking if a bunch of stars are falling, right? Our sun is a star, right? What do we think of our sun being made of? Seriously? Fire. Fire. So I get it. You guys would, you did, never mind. That was not like in that, like there was a certain, never mind, forget it. It could look like fire, right? He says, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. What's that make you say? Huh. Like when a fig tree drops, its, stars are going to fall like when a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by the mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved in its place, moved out of its place. So what do you think? That's during the tribulation period, okay? Now, again, 
but don't feel like you have to get bogged down in all this. But he says, that kind of stuff. So he says, there's going to be a time coming. You've got to keep in mind, prophetically, God's outside of space and time, right? So when God writes prophecy through one of his prophets, oftentimes it's, kind of, it's almost like if I take a, uh, it, it's almost like if I take a, a wet paintbrush and I sling it, like I'm slinging it over here at Jeff, right? And some of it, you know, it's all future, right? But some of it will hit here, some of it will hit here, some of it will hit there right? That's how prophecy oftentimes is written. And there's oftentimes a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, right? But um, when we don't, when we see something that's sort of partially fulfilled and not fully fulfilled, we call that partially fulfilled and not yet fully fulfilled, if we're taking it as literally as possible. Again, we have lots of reasons why we've, we've said before that we do that. And so what you have here, he says, after the Assyrian invasion, you know, which was, uh, you know, around 600-ish B.C., so it's after that right now, right? After that, you know, it's going to come to pass that he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter said, that time is now. Pentecost, right? First century AD. And then there's going to be some other stuff going on. You know, your sons and daughters are going to prophesy, old men, young men, men servants, maid servants. And then, all, and then I'm also going to show wonders in the heaven and the earth so that's probably, and I would, I would read that as a little further on, and I see it, I, I say that because I see that fulfilled in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. And he says that's going to happen before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. What do we know to happen at the end of that seven-year tribulation period? Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set foot on earth. I think we could safely call that day a great and awesome day day of the Lord, right? you imagine? I mean, I can't even hardly picture it, but it's going to happen. That Jesus will come down, set foot on the Mount of Olives, just outside of the, of the walls of Jerusalem there. It, it's going to be amazing. And when he comes down, that's going to be a great day. It's going to be an awesome day. And it's going to be his day, right? All the attention is going to be on him that day. You can count on it, right? But before that time, there's going to be things happen, I believe, during that tribulation period. Things like wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, sun turned into darkness, moon into blood. And why do I say that? Because I read it in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. So, regardless, the beauty of it is, Regardless of where we find ourselves on the timeline, right, we're a human being, right? There's ways that God deals with societies, there's ways that God deals with history, but God also deals with us as human beings. Regardless of who we are or wherever we are, it says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what Peter quoted to us, right? You know what you got to do to be saved? You got to say, Wow. I guess I'm a sinner, right? Now, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have to be too creative to come up with that conclusion, right? You know what? I guess I'm a sinner. And then recognize that God is not. And we are separated from God. And the only solution to that separation is the salvation that's offered through Jesus Christ. And so we say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Do you think God would not answer that prayer? Lord, from a, from a humble person, from a humble, sincere, authentic person, Lord, please forgive me of my sins and come into my life and cleanse me of my sins and help me to be a Christian and walk with you. That person's saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Do you need to go through some class? You need another handshake? We joke around here that, you know, if you come here like three or four weeks in a row, we're going to teach you the handshake, right? Hey, don't, that's not public now, right? Do you have to know some handshake or go through some class or reach some state of goodness? Now, we don't say, the answer to that is, because we're in church, of course not. But do we act like that? So you've got to be, you've got to have a certain amount of goodness in you to be one of us, 
Do we ever act like that as the church? Shame on us if we do, right? Now, the other side of that, are we so casual and flippant that, you know, hey, man, there's grace for you. If that works for you, who am I to judge? Do we do that? No way. I've said it from this stage many times, and I will probably many more times. It is not love for me to let you believe a lie that will take you to hell. And we're entering a phase of society where if we believe that, we're called unloving. Well, it's not loving. If I truly believe there's a heaven and a hell, guess what? If I don't believe there's a heaven and hell, then I can throw this book away, right? But if I don't throw this book away, and if I think this book has some validity, and if I think this book is historically accurate, reliable, and I've got lots of reasons to think so. If anybody has any questions, I could give them tons of references on that. But this book, I believe, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. I believe that all Scripture, every word in this book, every punctuation in this book, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says it in there. So that's either true or it's not, right? You've got to understand, when, when, when the Bible makes so many absolute claims, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's a, that's a, that's a truth claim. It, it forces you that statement forces you to say it's either true or it's false. If he says, no one comes to the Father except by me, that's either true or false. All right? So we either accept it or we say Jesus was either a liar or he didn't know what he's talking about. I'm not willing to say that. So I have to accept it. So if I accept it, then I have to come back to this book. And I have to say, you know what? There are so many truth claims in this book that it's got to be all, all true. If I start to peel it apart, it's like, a, it's like pulling a thread out of a sweater. It, it's pretty quick. It becomes undone, right? So I have to accept it. So if the Bible's true, the Bible's true. And so the good news is whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And so, you know, re- whatever we say here, regardless of where you're at on the prophetic timeline, uh, we have an opportunity to be a part of that remnant, that remnant that calls on the name of the Lord and is saved. Chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So again, we're talking about a future time at that day and at that time. It would seem like that's contextually somewhere in these days that we read about verses 28 through 32. But as we mentioned, that's somewhere between Pentecost and the great and coming day of the Lord, right? Or or the great and awesome, what do you say? The great and awesome day of the Lord, right? So, Somewhere in those days, and at that time, he said, I'm going to bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, well, some would say that that was partially fulfilled. Remember the captives of Judah and Jerusalem went to Babylon, right? We read through the book of uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They went, through, they went to Babylon. They were in Babylon for 70 years. After 70 years... Uh, the Persians came over, came and took over the Babylon, Babylonians, and they released those captives back to Jerusalem. So the near fulfillment, here's an example of a near fulfillment, is God gathered the Jewish people back to Jerusalem 70 years after they were in captivity. Is that the complete story? Is that uh, the prophetic fulfillment? No. There's another story, right, because we know it to have happened again in past tense, 1948. God's continuing to regather the Jewish people. So God's regathering the Jewish people. Guess what's still happening? People are coming back. Jewish people are coming back to the nation of Israel, right? I've seen it. I've been there. God's people, the Jewish people, are coming back to the nation of Israel. And he says also, he says, 
I'm going to gather all nations. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And so he says, I'm going to gather the Jewish people, the captives from Judah and Jerusalem, and I'm also going to gather all nations into a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there's no other scriptural reference of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, but the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So most commentators take this to mean the Valley of Judgment, and many refer to this as the Battle of Armageddon or the Valley at, of, at the Valley of Megiddo, also called the Jezreel Valley. Now, I can tell you this. I wish I had a picture that could describe this, but I've seen this. You stand up uh, on the mountain... And you can look out over in Israel. You can stand up on the, on, the, on the mountains and look out over the valley of Megiddo. It's also called the Jezreel Valley. And at that time, again, at the end of, uh, the, Revela- the, end of the tribulation period described in Revelation chapter 16, God's going to gather all these nations that think they're coming to fight against the Jewish people. They're really coming to fight against him, right? And who wins when you fight against God? God, right? And so God says, in a sense, I'm going to gather all these people that have hated the Jews. I'm going to gather all these nations that have hated the Jews for so long. They've treated them so horribly. Honestly, it's despicable the way they've, the way they've been treated. Now, again, I told you, it's, almost, it, it's, it's miraculous that a nation would cease to exist from 70 AD to 1948. It's also miraculous that that nation has survived despite the long-standing history of hatred toward the Jewish people. Is that weird? Like, just trace it back. Pharaoh, right? God's people are in Egypt. Pharaoh says, man, there's so many of them that if our, if our enemies come to fight against, and they were slaves there, right? There's so many of them that if our enemies come to fight against us, these guys will side with them and will They'll destroy us from within. I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to wipe them out. Right? Pharaoh says, any Jewish baby boy, kill him. Right? Now that would be, that would affect your numbers as a society. Right? Well, you know the story. Right? Did, did that wipe them out? Nope. Time after time after time after time. Right? Um, Haman in the book of Esther. What did he try to wipe out? The entire Jewish people. Was he successful? No. Um, King Herod, in the days of Jesus, didn't try to wipe out the, all the, the whole nation, but all the Jewish young boys, right? Did he eliminate the nation? No. Well, you say, well, that's ancient history. Nazi Germany? What did Hitler try to, try to wipe out? The Jewish people, Right? And I can tell you this without going off too much, right? What are we going to see historically play out over and over and over again? Hatred of the Jewish people, right? What are we going to see, I believe, as we approach the end times, the last days? What are we going to see? We're going to see more and more hatred of the Jewish people. Do we see a little bit of that kind of brewing maybe below the surface even now? I believe we do, right? What did God tell uh, Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Let me tell you this. Any good foreign policy, I don't care what nation you are, any good foreign policy is to stand on the side of Israel. Because if you do that, God will bless you. If you don't, God will curse you, right? Right? Again, it's an either-or, right? So what do we see? We see as, as the final days approach, does it feel like this could happen tomorrow? I hope you feel like it could happen tomorrow. I hope you're not paranoid, right? But I hope you feel like, thankfully, God's in control. Because you know, it's kind of funny. It makes you say, huh, that all of these things that were written thousands of years ago seem to be playing out maybe even more and more and more as time goes on, and we're living in them. 
pestilences. We've experienced that. The regathering of the nation of Israel, 1948, we're experiencing that. Long-standing hatred of the Jewish people, we're experiencing that. Probably more of the same, we'll, I believe, we'll experience that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the rapture of the church. We're going to see more and more of this. Well, anyway, at the end of that tribulation period, God is going to gather the, the nations. The nations that have treated Israel so bad, God is going to gather them for, uh, for judgment. And he says, verse 4, Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. So these are nations that were just, uh, these are people groups that were just uh, constantly hostile to the Jewish people. Um, you know, Joel's not going to write necessarily. He could have, but he didn't write, you know, Germany. What have I had to do with you, Germany? Right? He's writing to his contemporaries, uh, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia. Um, I'm going to retaliate. If you re will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I'll return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you have forsaken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. And the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you've sold to the Greeks you, that you may remove them far from their borders. So what you notice here, he says, will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I'll return your retaliation upon your own head. What's that say? God is talking in first person. Do you catch this? We're talking about the, the hostility of the Gentile nations, by and large, throughout history to the Jewish people. And God is referring to the Jewish people and the defense of them as me, right, in first person. You recall when... Uh, when Saul, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was persecuting the church, right? God met him on the road to Damascus, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? God identifies so much with his people that he often speaks in first person. When, when Saul was persecuting the church, when Saul was persecuting Christians, God says, you're persecuting me. And so here, when these uh, foreign nations are coming against the Jewish people, God says, that's me. Verse 7. And don't get nervous. We're going to read through these last verses quickly. Were you nervous? The rest of you were. Verse 7, Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. So God's going to reverse the tide of persecution of the Jewish people. You're going to see an ongoing, I believe, really until the, the tribulation and the end of the tribulation, which is the Battle of Armageddon, we're going to see more and more and more and more ongoing, maybe little periods of reprieve, but more and more ongoing of persecution against the Jewish people. It's, it's prophetically uh, predicted. And it's been played out so much so far that it's not a stretch to, to visualize it. So verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 kind of warn the nations to prepare for judgment. The rest of this chapter, or these next verses 9 through 15, warns the nations to prepare for war. And this is, again, a specific reference to the Battle of Armageddon. He says, verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. He's talking about these, these nations that are come, to, come together at the Valley of Megiddo. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and the, come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their, wine, their wickedness is great. So God, again, he's gonna, all these people are going to be gathering, thinking that they're coming uh, for this great battle that they're going to win, and they're going to thump the Jewish people, and God's going to meet them there. And it's going to be like just swiping a sickle and harvesting the grapes. 
And in the midst of this, he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So notice now, this it's a little bit of a play on words, right? Because we've been talking about the Valley of Megiddo, uh, the Jezreel Valley. It's a, it's a physical, literal, uh, huge, huge, huge valley. But we also find ourselves somewhat in this Valley of Decision, right? We have daily decisions. You know, we have a, we have a, we have a once in our life decision. I'm going to accept Jesus into my life and be saved. But then we also have valleys of sort of day-to-day types of decisions, don't we? Right? I'm going to serve myself or I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to look out for number one or I'm going to surrender to God's will. I'm going to plan out my own life and determine my own destiny or I'm going to see what He has for me. We're all in the valley of decision. It's a place of whether we decide to bow our hearts to Jesus. And again, he says, the sun and moon will grow dark. That's going to happen. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you see both sides of this, right? If we're a child of God, then he's not scary. If we're not a child of God, we should be very scared, right? But as children of God, he's going to be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through again. So after God comes down after Jesus comes down in that great and awesome day of the Lord at the end of the uh, of the great tribulation period and he sets up uh, deals with the with the Gentile nations um, at the battle of Armageddon then he sets up his millennial kingdom and then he reigns from Jerusalem right and he reigns and we have a worldwide king we have a worldwide God on the throne kingdom with Jerusalem as its headquarters, and, this, and Revelation tells us that Satan is bound, and it'll go on for a thousand years. And it's a beautiful time on earth, really much like the Garden of Eden. It's not heaven, but it's, a, we call it a millennial kingdom. And there's lots of descriptions uh, throughout the Bible uh, of that time. It'll be a beautiful time. It talks about, you know, uh, a young child will play in a viper's den, and his mother won't care about it, right? And, you know, there's going to be all kinds of, you know, essentially Garden of Eden before the curse. And it'll be a beautiful experience. But, you know, at that time, God's going to dwell. It says Jesus, Jesus will, he'll dwell in Zion and his, and his holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy. And that'll be the headquarters of the millennial kingdom. And then we see it, uh, again, a little description of it, starting in verse 18. It'll come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt, which, you know, Egypt throughout the scripture is a picture of the world's strength, right? It's going to be a desolation. Edom, uh, one of the nations that uh, was always hostile uh, to the Jewish people. It's going to be a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in in their land, but Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So during the millennial kingdom, uh, the land of Israel will enjoy its intended glory. Uh, Places like Egypt and Edom won't be favored anymore, and it'll be ruled by Jesus for a thousand years. It'll be a great thing. And then at the end of that thousand years, right, then there's final judgment, and those who have called on the name of the Lord go to be with him forever. And as, the Th- as Paul told the Thessalonians, therefore, comfort one another with these words, right? Any kind of end times prophecy, if it makes you say, ah, then we don't understand it, right? If it makes you say, all right, huh, well, that's cool. Bring it on. 
Thank you, Lord. Come, Jesus, come. Come, Lord, quickly, right? Then we are reading it properly. So God is the author of all past history as well as all future history. Future history we call prophecy because it hasn't happened yet. He sees what happens on earth and he's protective of his people. God loves you. God loves you. That drives everything he does. And he invites each of us to be one of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that regardless of all the chaos in past history, even sometimes chaos in present history, even chaos sometimes in our own lives, you are the one who brings peace. You bring us peace through your grace. And only by your grace can we find peace. And so, Lord, help us to be those people who daily call upon the name of the Lord. That we would be your children. That we would love you and serve you and respond to the love that you've already poured out for us. And that you would have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us, please, now. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.